Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adamian Golf. And this episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by Shop Indoor Golf. You can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. They've got pretty much every major brand of golf simulator, like the Foresight GC Quad, which Adam and our guests today have. They've got Skytrack, which I use. They've got Unicore. Anything that will fit your budget, they've got. And be sure to check out their new Sig Pro Premium Impact screen. So check them out at shopindoorgolf.com and thanks for their support. Adam, who are we interviewing today? We've got the the main man with course management. And uh, anybody who kind of asks me about course management, you know, I say, well, I've got I've got some theories, you know, I do do a lot of stuff in course management myself, but I always defer to this guy because he has dedicated his life around the math. This is the guy that we all defer to when it comes to course management and strategy. Scott Fawcett, welcome on. There wasn't a drum roll or anything leading in? <laughs> no, we've got like nothing, nothing for you. We're, we're very low tech on this podcast. Crossfield does a nice job with the sound effects. Maybe he can show you how those work. Yeah, well, well we're definitely going to have him on. We had Lou on, we had you on, and we've got to get uh, the, the third member of the gang. Although the, the the former gang, I know you're you're no longer on the Hack It Out podcast. Your run is over. The band is broken up. I know you'll continue to, to grace them with your presence. So we've wanted to have Scott on for a while, and we've wanted to talk about tee shot strategy. And I kept internally struggling about it because I was like, well, Scott always talks about tee shot strategy on every podcast he's been on. And at the same time, you know, we want to cover it. But if we cover it ourselves, I feel like we're just going to keep talking about decade principles. So I texted Scott with this dilemma, and I said, well, why don't we just make your first appearance on the show about tee shot strategy. I, I hope to have you on on other episodes. We can talk about a lot of different topics, but we're going to start off with, with tee shot strategy. So here we go. Do you have the next 10 hours earmarked? <laughs> I, hey, I said that I was leaving the hack it out because I want to do more long uh, long form interviews. So we'll see how this goes. We, we can't, there's a number of reasons we can't cover anything because first of all, um, you know, decade is proprietary info. You're not going to give away everything. And there's so many topics to cover that we, we don't have the time, but what I'm hoping to do is kind of tackle some of the, I don't know, overall big framework thoughts that, that you've helped people like myself, um, get better with, with their tee shot strategy. And we've got a bunch of questions from people on Twitter and Adam and myself. So we'll just keep firing at you and uh, you can answer. It's best to start with what is what is decade? If you could give us a, a brief sentence paragraph. Sure. You know, so, I, you know, I played professional golf. Obviously, like I said, I'm 48. So 20 years ago, I was playing professionally in my 20s. And I was honestly just a total lunatic. So I really did not understand course management, didn't understand psychology. And, you know, quit, start, got a day job. And in 2013, actually, it was in 2008, when I started working with Como, was the first time I really started thinking more in depth about stats and strategy and everything. And as launch monitor data became more prevalent, I started, you know, again, using Como and my shot pattern data to, to really start thinking about course management. And then when the strokes gained putting statistics alone were released in 2011, I kind of realized, I'm like, 
it's kind of like a Reese's peanut butter cup where peanut butter and chocolate meld them together and it, uh, it yields something good, even though I hate Reese's peanut butter cups makes the analogy work. But I realized that I could take all this shot pattern data and just the strokes gain putting data. And I was like, you know, I can kind of guesstimate. I didn't know they were tracking the rest of the shots. And I was like, I feel like I can guesstimate pretty much what the rest of the shots, it kind of sparked the idea what the rest of the expected values were, certainly around the greens pretty easily. And then even going back out into the fairway, some and in, in, in theory start to try to optimize target selection and really understanding putting was one of the main ones that I needed, you know, because approach shots, the main thing we need to figure out is what combination of greens and regulation and length of remaining putt will actually create the lowest scoring average. So I did all this work for about six months and then I got a cortisone shot in my right elbow the week before the Texas amateur in 2014 and the guy paralyzed my right arm. So I wound up reaching out to a junior golfer at my home course here in Dallas at the time who, you know, uh, to, to spoiler alert was Will Zalatoris, who we all at this point, I don't have to explain who he is anymore, but I caddied for Will when he won the Texas amateur and, uh, it was pretty fun, obviously. And then I caddied for him a couple weeks later when he won the U S junior. And honestly, at the time he was 3,300 in the world. He's not a psychopath like I was or anything. He just really didn't understand course management because he's such a great ball striker. He feels like he can do anything on any given shot and he's, and he's almost correct, but He's trying to play super aggressive, trying to make as many birdies as possible and not really realizing really we need to be playing, again, I hate the words conservative and aggressive, but we need to be playing a little bit smarter and eliminating bogeys is easier than making more birdies. So next thing you know, because DeChambeau is here in Dallas at SMU, the SMU coach, Jason Enlow, reached out to me. He was like, Bryson plays really aggressively, can't get him to stop. Can you help him? So he's the second player that I worked with, you know, through 2000, I guess about 15, you know, before he won the NCAAs or US Amateur through about his, you know, third or second or third year playing professionally. You know, next thing you know, I'm uh, apparently a strategy expert and talking to podcasts all around the world. (laughs) So it's been a lot of fun, honestly. Like I definitely think that the fact that I was so bad at course management and mindset whenever I was playing professionally is why I teach it so well now, because, and again, what I have to tell players all the time is there's nothing you can tell me that's going to surprise me whatsoever. Anything you think you've thought, multiply it times a hundred, add in a healthy dose of aliens. And I have thought that too. (laughs) Trust me, you're not going to, you're not going to blow my mind or make me think anything less of you. So it really is just about, Six years ago, I would have told you it's all, all all math. I'm the smartest math guy on the planet. Yay me. And now six years removed, I'm like, oh, it's all psychology intertwined with a little bit of strategy, expectation management, obviously, that I harp on constantly. And and really, it's just a much more sane way to attack a golf course. So if you had to make a generic statement of what do you think golf got wrong about tee shots for so long? And like, what have we figured out thanks to the work of guys like Mark Brody and yourself kind of adding layers upon the stroke scheme data and all the launch monitor data? Like, what would you summarize all the like, what did we used to think and what do we now know is is a more efficient way to score off the tee? I think it's pretty obvious that we all knew length was an advantage, but I don't think that anyone really understood how much of an advantage. So even myself back in my twenties, I hit it further than everyone that I played golf with on the Hooters tour, Golden Bear tour. I mean, like I, I bombed it, but I never tried longer clubs or to, you know, get stronger and hit it even further. Cause I was like, well, I hit it past everyone now. Like, well, hitting it further past everyone. And I, I think what Bryson's done is absolutely incredible. And so 
you know, the majority of the, the the bunters on the planet think, well, I'll just, you know, I can just get hey, my what driver. What are you saying here? I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bunter. <laughs> you know, you probably think that, hey, I can just hit every fairway then. I mean, it really is incredible looking back at it, especially even for long players be like, well, this hole is a little bit tight, so I'll just drop back and get it in play with my three. And it's like you don't hit your three wood in play any more often than you do your driver. And I'm not poking fun at people because – the, I played in the 1999 U.S. Open, and I hit three wood off the t- off the first tee to get it in play, and it was just there's it's it's the most driver hole that's ever been on the planet, and so I did happen to hit the fairway, but that was pretty much probably pot luck. So people definitely drop back way too often to just get it in play, and then they wind up comparing one outcome to one outcome is really the biggest mathematical mistake people make. So they, you know, again, they say, well, I mean, if I hit driver, I'm going to be way up there, but I'm going to be in the rough. Well, not all the time. And if I hit three wood, I'll I'll be back here and I'll be in the fairway. Well, well, not all the time either. And especially, well, let's drop back to two iron now. I mean, that's not even going to get in the fairway all the time. And I, I, I know I get a lot of people that give me a hard time for using these par three images from shot link because we don't know where everyone's target was. But when I take a par three on the PGA tour that is playing 220 yards and I find a pin that's in the dead middle on either the front or the back. So directionally, everyone is aiming at the pin from 220 yards. The shot pattern is going to be 40, 45 yards wide every single time. It's, it's honestly pretty mind boggling. And so then you take a hole like number six at winged foot where they played the U S open when Bryson won and an, an old golf channel pundit who I think lost his mind, unfortunately, was posting the week before on Twitter, you know, oh, nobody's going to go for six. Go for six. You'd have to be a fool. And somebody tagged me and I'm like, here we go. Like 100 percent of the people are going to go for six that understand math and course management. And in the first round, I don't know the exact numbers, but a whole bunch did. And in the second round, even more did. And in the third round, even more did. And finally in the final round, even more did like everybody slowly figured it out. Well, I, I missed the fairway, even when trying to hit a six iron, literally a six iron into a 25 yard fairway to lead themselves hundred yards, as opposed to, they can just carry driver somewhere up and around the green and then figure it out. And I think that's the main thing. I always talk about like, stop trying to make birdies but critical to that is there are certain spots where you are, yes, trying to make a birdie. And that's actually with your tee shot on somewhat drivable par fours or your second shot on somewhat reachable par fives. You're trying to get that ball up and around the green as close as you can. And then you have to have the discipline to reassess, okay, that kind of worked out. I'm still in a good spot. I'm, I missed it in the left rough. The pins in the middle are on the right-hand side. I've still got a lot of green to work with. I can continue, air quotes, trying to make birdie. But the key is, like on a number six at winged foot, if the pin's on the left and you happen to miss the green 20 yards left in the rough, just don't make bogey. You, you score when you're in position. You just don't screw it up when you're out of position. Because when you make those silly bogeys trying to get too cute and, and trying to get back to, to having a look at birdie, that's when you just absolutely destroy your scoring average. And for the most part, it's just not that hard to hit the green. You know, when once you've hit a chip shot or excuse me, a tee shot or a second shot up and around the green, it's only hard to hit the green once you're trying to be too cute. Again, trying to make birdie. So you tried to off the tee. It didn't work out. Get off the accelerator. Get back in position. Maybe you'll, you'll hit a, a good shot that accidentally goes close, but you're not trying to hit it close. So one of the things that you said that I, I think the big eye opener for me with tee shots is looking at 
dispersion data and then understanding stroke gain more effectively. We've spoken about this before on other episodes where we used to assign lateral safety as like the true measurement of a successful tee shot. So players like myself would be like, oh, I'm going to hit four iron here to stay out of the trees and just, you know, make sure I hit that fairway. And I wasn't considering, well, if I only hit that 210 versus a driver that's 270, that 60 yards, that decision's already costing me shots because my proximity to the hole is an issue. But, you know, I think the main thing that a lot of people give blowback towards, you know, guys like you or other people who are saying like hit drivers, like, well, you know, I hit my safe shot, my safe club so straight. And I'd like to turn this over to Adam because, you know, you've worked with a lot of golfers on launch monitors and we've talked about issues like face control. Adam, what have you seen? And not every golfer is the same, but in terms of like a left to right dispersion with like a player who hits an okay with the driver and then a four iron, like do they really hit it that much straighter or is that a farce? can be player dependent, but I would say generally, no, they don't hit it much straighter if you were to take out a, a kind of cone shape. I mean, actually, listening to the Hack It Out podcast the other day and Sasha was on there talking about how in terms of club face presentation, players are just as accurate with a driver as they are with a putter. Or you can flip that sentence, which is crazy. I got to see your math on that one. That's so insane to think about, isn't it? Yeah, but I've seen that as well. You know, I've seen Sam Lab data and then I've looked at GC Quad data and seen that, yes, the players can present the club face, you know, two degrees either side of zero with both both clubs. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. So saying to take a a smaller club, you're going to make a better swing is not true. There is a certain percentage... With a driver, I think the ball curves 4% offline for every one degree of club face variance. So if your club face is one degree offline at 300 yards, that's about 12 yards offline total. So obviously, as you go, as you go down through the clubs, that percentage actually changes as well. As, so with a seven iron, it's 2%. So it's half of the, the variance for every, cl- uh, every degree offline. So there is, you are more accurate with a shorter club physics wise but then there's a cost to everything right if you hit a fairway mathematically you're gaining something by hitting a fairway versus missing the fairway but what are you losing in distance and you're not going to hit the fairway 100% of the time with a 7 iron or a 4 iron and you're not going to miss the fairway 100% of the time with a driver as well so you can you can use all this math and that's what Scott, Scott has done really well to to figure out all this math and figure out well what what would be the predicted outcome if you were to hit certain shots? If you go back to the to the Texas Amateur that I was talking about in 2014, and you know, like we were talking about before, I, I do try to say some different stuff in each one of these podcasts, and I don't think I've said this one very often, actually. 2014, I was planning on playing in the Texas Amateur, got a quarter zone shot in my right arm. The doctor paralyzed my right arm. He's the one that's like, dude, you can't play golf for a couple months now. I'm like, awesome. I just did six months worth of work solving course management. Now I can't even use it. That's why I called Will. Will and I met for lunch and we went through Brook Hollow where the Texas Amateur was that year. And I literally changed 12 of the 14 clubs he was planning on hitting off the tees. And what's really interesting about that is, again, he hit the ball as well as he does right now when he was 17. It, I mean, he and I have literally talked about this. It's not much different. He hits it a little bit further and a little bit better, but his game is improved because of his short game and his putting. He hits it about like he did. Well, importantly, 
he was planning on all of these like 360 yard par fours. It's a classic old, you know, small golf course here in Dallas. It's an amazing place. I don't want to say small, make anyone mad. It's an amazing place, but it's kind of a smaller golf course. And so he was planning on hitting four iron sand wedge on all these 360 yard par fours. And then on all these par fives where they had bunkers that pinched in right at about 310. I mean, they all did where driver was just, it was only, you know, 25, 30 feet wide where this bunker would pinch in. He was planning on hitting driver there on all of them because it's cool to hit driver nine iron to a par five. And I'm like, no, dude, we hit three wood off of these. We're going to hit three wood, six or seven iron because the fairway pinches to less than 40 yards. And on all those 360 yard par fours, we're just going to send driver up there and see what happens. Because it is important, like you're gonna, the fairway's gonna get in the way of of a bunch more shots than you actually think it's going to. And then importantly, if I happen to hit it left and the pin is in the middle or on the right-hand side, it's it's no problem. Again, that gets back to what we were just talking about before. If you happen to miss it on the side that the hole is located against, then we need to get off the accelerator. But here's a kid that, you know, I don't know what his world ranking is right now, about 20, 25, something like that. But just a mere six years ago, this kid was literally playing golf backwards. And yes, the course management is a large part of of what got him better. And a lot of that was off the tee, just sending driver everywhere physically possible. The thing that I was thinking when you were first setting Adam up with that question there, John, was about the idea of getting the ball in play. And the first time, you know, so Bryson, I did my seminar at SMU in February of 2015 before Bryson won the NCAAs or the US Amateur. Like with most of my players, I don't get out on the golf course with them ever. Well, Will was playing in the Pat Coast Amateur at Eugene Country Club, as was Bryson. So now Bryson has won the NCAA championship, but he still isn't the US Amateur champion. And we played our practice rounds together and, you know, hitting some balls on the range, whatever. We play the first four or five holes, something like that at Eugene. And Bryson's just hitting his little 270 yard fairway finder bunt shot. And I'm like, all right, dude, you've been telling me about this, you know, the big ball for for months now. Let me see it. He tees this thing up an inch and a half higher and basically does his current swing and hits it an extra 60 yards. And I was like, what? I was not (laughs) expecting that. Like, why aren't we doing that more often? He's like, well, I just, you know, injury prevention. I just don't think the body can handle it. And I'm like, you need to get over that because you just can't leave 60 yards in the bag with your driver. Like you need to be hitting that thing absolutely everywhere. And it's just so interesting because even him, it took him another three or four years to even start to realize like, wow, I'm leaving a lot on the table here and then start the process that we've all witnessed with Como and his, his physios in, in Denver. But he, even Bryson again, so here's Zalatoris playing the Texas amateur course and dead ass backwards. And here's Bryson leaving 60 yards in the, in the bag just because he thinks he's going to eventually hurt his body. It's, it's pretty crazy, to be honest. Was that the only concern for him was the, the injury? Because it should be uh, an easy sell to him mathematically, right? Oh, I mean, mathematically, it, it was for sure. It was all about injury prevention. And at the time, again, it's 2015. So at that point, I had been doing it for about a year. You know, But again, I, I've owned an electricity company. This was definitely just part-time on the side then. So I wasn't really as aggressive with, trust me, I'm right. As, as if, if I were playing a practice with a guy right now and he did that, I'd be like, dude, stop, go, go do whatever you got to do physio wise to feel more comfortable with swinging at it like that. But I really do think it's interesting, especially the grief that he catches currently about people like eventually you're going to hurt yourself. I'm like, I don't know why if 
I always like to give Zach Blair a hard time, so I'll do it here again. But if you're Zach Blair, he's swinging as hard as he can at it right now. He's not leaving any in the tank. Zach has just as much of a chance of hurting himself as Bryson does. And I know people won't believe that because it's so easy to go show, well, Brooks does this and that. Brooks runs a lot. Tiger runs a lot. That's what those guys' problems are with their knees. Anyone, like most people, are swinging just about as hard as they can at it. Well, you could swing harder. You couldn't swing faster. And I think that's what people get lost when they say, well, you know, Nicholas said he swung at 80%. Like, no, Jack did not have an extra 20% of club head speed in the bag. He might have had an extra 20% of effort, but it would not have moved the club significantly faster. Um, and so I don't, I don't think injury just has to go hand in hand with swinging hard. Again, assuming you've prepared your body for it, which is what Rory, <laughs> no offense, kind of got wrong. Back after the U.S. Open, he just went out and started trying to swing harder. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not what you're doing. You're getting stronger, and then you're swinging harder. I mean, Bryson, shoot, he did a good six or nine months worth of body work, you know, behind the scenes before they even started trying to swing faster consistently. You got to do a lot of prep work so your your infrastructure can handle that. And then get up there and try to send it. I actually sent myself an email last night that said, stop trying to max out your swing already, you dumbass. Because <laughs> I've literally been getting on these Instagram lives and all I want to do is get my club head speed back up to 130 and my elbows, you know, I've had two surgeries this year fixing my, my elbow so I can start going after the Champions Tour. And I literally last night, I was kind of sore and I'm like, what am I doing? I've hit balls like seven times. And I'm out there trying to max out distance already. It's just such a fun game to play, but you've got to get your body right. I'm glad I'm not the only one who sends emails to myself. A very natural reaction. I'll play devil's advocate here for a second because I see how people react to things you're saying. Um, they're saying, oh, well, Will Zalatoris and Bryson play this game for a living. They're top 30 in the world. They have all the time to employ that strategy. And then a normal golfer who, you know, let's face it, most Average golfers, we have the data to prove this, are hitting it, you know, 220, 230, 240 off the tee. Um, they're not physically fit. And a lot of them, you know, look at what the pro game is doing and the bomb and gouge, which I think is a misnomer, and say, well, that's not for me. And I know you've done a lot of work over the past few years with more quote unquote average players. How does this all relate to them with tee shot strategy in terms of? embracing driver or how they evaluate holes? Well, whether they were wanting to try to peak out distance or not, or max out distance, I mean, that's totally up to them. The main point is you should be hitting driver probably far more than, than you think you should. And, and, you know, I have a driving decision tree now that basically holds your hand and helps you make optimal decisions off the tee. And, and, but one of those things is think driver first and then adjust down. So if you're playing a practice round, I want you literally hitting driver off of essentially every single hole because then it's it's much easier to be like, whoa, well, that wasn't right and drop back than it is to to hit three wood in a practice round and then realize, oh, man, there's another 30 yards up here. I wonder if I could have hit driver. So the average guy at home probably needs to be hitting a lot more drivers, especially well, that, that driving decision tree really is just baked in the math. It's for people that hit it over about 270 and people like, is that carrier total? It's like a 260 to 280 yard gray window. And if you hit it under 260 and you're playing the appropriate tees, you should probably be hitting driver just about everywhere. I mean, there's just because the golf course is designed for the average man, there's usually enough width to provide those angles. No, sorry. Every time I say the word width, I have to say angles. We'll get to the angles, but let's table that for a second. The average guy, though. I mean, again, 
Well, it's part of the reason I, I kind of wanted to, to do something different than the way we were doing that hack it out podcast. Like I'm more about peak performance. So I'll, I'll be the first to admit like, yeah, maybe I'm not for you. If, but if you want to shoot lower scores, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to get a little bit more hip mobility, a little bit, you know, upper thoracic mobility, a little bit of strength. You don't have to go in there and crush it like Bryson is two or three times a day, but just kind of general health and fitness, everyone, maybe we should work out a little bit more and you can get a little bit stronger. It's just not that hard to do for most people and the results will be there. And then, you know, if you take it even further than that, like, okay, well, I don't really want to work out. Well, that's fine. Just understanding how to properly use your, your legs or, you know, the ground, like, again, that's not that hard to do and understand. Well, that's been the biggest surprise here is I've, as I put the simulator here in my room, the one thing that I realized I don't have really, I don't know what my swing is, to be honest. Like you see a lot of guys that really use the the ground like a tiger and that lead leg is straightening. That, that He's not snapping the leg back like the announcers used to say. That he's, he's jumping, which naturally straightens your leg. So those guys are using their legs to go up, which creates more club head speed. You've got other guys that have a lot of side bend that are more rotational. I don't know what I am because I don't have much side bend. I don't use the ground very much either. I really don't know where I get the majority of my power. But the one thing that I've been screwing around here with is from the top of the swing, feeling like my first move. If you think about how Rory looks like he sets with his lower body, he sets in and then turns. I'm sitting here doing all my golf swings. But you set with your lower body and then he turns and explodes. That's kind of the feel I've been going for. And honestly, that's given me like three or four miles an hour of club head speed with my irons. And I think it's about the same with my driver because I posted a couple 125 mile an hour ones in here the other day. And I, I just, I don't think there's any way I'm physically ready for that post-surgery. I, I think that's entirely from trying to use my lower body different. And that's the kind of things that I would tell people to tinker around with is feeling those different feels to incorporate more of the lower body. And you don't have to work out at all for that. You just need to understand more of the dynamics of where club head speed comes from. Well, having, having looked at a lot of amateurs recently um, on the golf course and obviously on the teaching tee, I'm doing that every day as well. But lo- loads of them are just mo- losing a ton of efficiency. So they've got a decent amount of club head speed. Obviously, everybody can increase it, but they're just losing 20, 30, 50 yards from cutting across it so much, you know, an outside in path or even swinging inside out and then hitting these really low, low spinning, low ball flight. Um, and, you know, just optimizing launch conditions, getting closer to that 15, 16, 18 degree even launch angle with a lower spin can pick up significant distance for people without them having to work out. If you can combine it with, you know, what you're talking about and working out and longer club shafts, better equipment, there's some serious yardage for a lot of players out there. It's that cutting across it that you talked about. There was a couple of years ago and I never actually saw the data or the study. So Ping, don't get mad at me if I'm wrong here, but I was having dinner with Jeff Smith, who obviously teaches 20 guys on the PGA Tour or something ridiculous. We're having dinner down in Florida one day, and he was talking, you know, I was talking about obviously fading the ball on 100% of my shots. He's like, yeah, but you're, you're losing, you know, at least 20 or 30 yards. I'm like, I don't see how that's possible. And then he started talking about the ping guys had done some study about hitting it straight versus having some cut, you know, some, some sort of movement on it. And I think that some of those studies were were way too much of a glancing blow at the tour level. Like, yeah, well, yeah, I'm talking about guys who are, who are really cutting across at 12 degrees or so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's where I was going with it though, because Jeff was kind of proposing it as some tour players. And I was like, I highly doubt that's the case based on a 10 yard cut on a, you know on a 120 mile an hour driver. But 
I can totally see where that data is correct for the average amateur because it is, it's just a glancing blow. If you, if you just think about something being open and, and slapping across a ball, it's clearly not going to have as much MOI or inertia or whatever the, the right sciencey word is. It's definitely not going to have enough, as much transfer of, of energy and power into the ball. And so, yes, if you are having a, a much of a cut, you know, and, and I would say that's like much more than about 15 ish, 20 ish yards you're probably losing quite a bit of power by that glancing blow you talked about. I get into this argument with a lot of people because I I remember a, a very vivid conversation I had with you, Scott, probably five years ago. And I've mentioned it on the podcast several times. Is like I came to you asking like, well, what can I do to actually become a good tournament player? And I told – and I essentially came to you with a very similar story that other people now come to me with is that – Oh, I just don't trust my driver. It, it, it costs me so many strokes. Like I'm looking at holes where I can lay back and keep it in play. And you kind of stopped me and you were like, well, listen, you're, you're never going to be a, a better golfer or even a good tournament player if you don't embrace that driver. Um, and I think that's ultimately what good coaching is, is that you are pointing someone in the right direction. You didn't do the work for me, um, but I bought into it because I I believed in your message and the data you were presenting me. And I said, I got to figure this out. (laughs) So for years, I, I, you know, whether it was equipment changes, putting in the practice on the launch monitor, um, it was more of an identity shift. I often refer to someone like James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits. Um, I wanted to change my identity as someone who was terrified of their driver to someone who said, like, I am a good driver of the golf ball. Um, and that wasn't easy. And I, I, it's still a work in progress. But that that now is the strength of my game. And and, and thankfully, my, my the, the, the scoring and tournament results have shown that. That me saying like, I am going to figure this out. I'm not going to give myself the opportunity to bail out when I, you know, things were getting tough. So I think a lot of people hear what you say and other statisticians at this point, they say, well, that's not for me. I'm a, you know, I can't keep my driver in play. Well, if you can't keep your driver in play, then I don't understand how does someone keep a three wood in play or a hybrid in play or a four iron in play. That's why I asked you that question, Adam. Um, There's no reason why that magically you can hit that four iron much straighter than the driver. It's, It's actually a much easier club to hit with the technology to some extent, because and I say this as a joke in my seminars, if you're listening, Henrik Stenson, I doubt you are, but just in case you are, if you have a swing flaw, like Henrik Stenson, where he hits down too much on the driver, he actually does hit his three wood materially better, but that's not normal. I mean, he, but if you think back to Fred couples way back in the day, he had that three wood that he hit absolutely everywhere. Especially if you start going back in the day, I had a 14 degree tailor made something that I played in college. I didn't carry a driver for like two years because I just hit this three wood a bazillion miles. And I probably had that same thing where I was hitting down on my driver too much at the time. And once you start changing those launch characteristics, so it it can be a little bit of both where you do have a little bit of a swing flaw. So you do hit your three wood better. But again, on average, that's not correct. When you look at a three wood, um, we've talked about this. I I did an article on this uh, with Woody Lashen, who's been on the show. We we talked about a three wood has a much smaller face. It has a lower MOI than a driver off the tee. Aside from some exceptions, if you were to take a normal golfer and told them hit 33 woods and then 30 drivers, um, I think a lot of them would be surprised at how not accurate the three wood is or the four iron is or whatever. I've done this test myself versus the driver. So I'm not saying 
the driver's the solution for everyone. But I guess the main message I'm trying to tell people is that instead of having this mindset where you're looking to avoid it at all costs, it has to be a more problem-solving embracing of it. Because if you keep avoiding it, I think you are leaving scoring on the table. And that's where a lot of golfers get stuck as they think about those one or two oops swings around and they're like, oh, well, that's in the bag forever. And those are actually reasonable outcomes for everyone's skill level. Like you are going to hit those oops shot with every club in your bag. Well, at some point, there's there's a Daniel Tosh joke that I think is hilarious where he's like, if you ever have a crowd of people running at you and one of them is yelling, do you know how to fly an airplane? You better muster up some courage and say yes. And that's the way I feel like the driver is like, I get it that you don't like it maybe right now, but you better muster up some courage and just send it until you do. And and I do think that once people understand how easy easier the driver is to hit by only shaping it one direction and straight is not a direction putting a little bit of curve on it makes it feel much more predictable when you're standing over the ball because you kind of know what it's going to do that's what you see with the brooks and djs and all i mean all the best players in the game right now really for the most part have got that much figured out and even going back in the day in the in the late 90s early 2000s my understanding is that tiger basically cut the driver and drew his irons and that's okay because of ball position. The exact same golf swing can yield two different shapes with those two clubs because ball position, ball up in your stance with the driver, path is exiting more left. It's kind of set up to hit a fade. Ball position with most of your irons a little bit further back. You're hitting a little bit down, kicks path to the right. You can have the same swing hit drawing irons and fading drivers. But what's interesting, and you see this especially with the elite female game, they're looking for distance with the driver and trying to hit softer iron shots So they wind up trying to draw the driver with the ball up in your stance and fade the irons with the ball back in your stance. And it's really, everything's working against you when you're trying to do that. I talk about fading every shot all the way through the bag. Well, that's because I've had some crappy elbows for almost 10 years now. So I've really gotten to where I just pick the ball off the ground, like, like Tom Watson. So the ball is a little bit further up in my stance. And that's the one thing that I'm interested to see as I start playing more is will I actually start drawing my irons, especially the shorter irons with having the ball a little bit further back in my stance and not being afraid to hit the ground a little bit. I I do think that I'll start drawing like say the eight iron through lob wedge and maybe the seven ish iron will be kind of straight. And then the six iron through four iron as the ball gets going a little bit further up in my stance, will start fading. And then the same thing all the way through the driver. Adam, what are your thoughts on that from a swing coach's perspective? Because we did a we did a whole episode on shot shaping where we we kind of were telling people like we don't love you to consciously shape it both ways for several reasons. To be clear, you know I'm the king of that. I mean, I- <laughs> no, yeah, I know that. I mean, I know I know we're preaching to the choir here. It's I mean, make sure that it wasn't misconstrued that I was saying no, 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 no ways. Yeah, um, no, I was I was just thinking about the the. Um- you know, ball back, ball forwards. I can see what Scott's saying because that is true in terms of the geometry, in terms of D plane, um, or or what they call the effective path. So you've got the club traveling on the down downward part of the arc, then it reaches the bottom part of the arc, and then it starts to travel up. And as that club is traveling more up, it's also traveling more in relative to the rest of the arc. So that that is certainly true. If you if you're making the exact same swing. And you have the ball further forward in the stance, that path is going to be more left 
than it would be if the ball were further, further back in the stance. And I know for most people that's that's a lot of information to take in, so they may have to rewind that, press the 30, 30 second back button. Well, let's get to the overall, like back to the strategy yeah, decisions. Yeah, like, I think that's I one mean, of the questions go I got on. One of the questions I got on Twitter and you get over and over again, is like, well, you know, my course has a lot of dog-like rights and I, I like to draw the ball. Should I learn how to fade it on those holes and then draw it on the dog-like less for a right-handed player? The decision's easy for me. I've said this before a million times. I'm just not capable of fading the golf ball. So, you know, my driver swings, I swing up a lot on it. So, it's either straight or a slight draw or if I heal it, then I'll get that uh, gear effect fade. Um, so, I only play it one way off the tee or have an intent. Scott, I know you've said this a million times, but I'm going to put words in your mouth. Why do you think it's a mistake to to shape it both ways off the tee based on the architecture of the hole, meaning the dog-like situation? If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why two and a half million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. The driver is the longest club in the bag with the flattest face being swung the fastest. And you're trying to change the faith to face to path relationship by a few degrees. It's just a really, really, really difficult thing to do. <clears throat> I'm certainly well aware that it would be cool to be able to do it, but I do, I do believe this is, and this is just conjecture. I do believe that simply by having the ability to alter the face to path relationship, you will introduce more double crosses period. And the double cross is the absolute destroyer of golf scores, period. I don't care if it's with your irons. Well, DJ, if you saw <clears throat> if you saw the shot, DJ, there's no way anyone's going to remember this totally nondescript shot from the Ryder Cup. But on 16, I don't remember which round it was. I feel like it probably had to be on Saturday. He had a, a, a sand wedge from 110 yards or something like that, and the pin was on the left. And he was clearly trying to hit like a little trap draw, and he blocked it, and he, he literally hit it into the right fringe. I mean, he, this shot was so bad. Even the announcer's like, wow, that's a really bad shot for that guy. And it's because he double-crossed it. <clears throat> you could totally tell from the where he had the, the ball in his stance and the path and the swing. And the, 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 the problem just becomes – amplified with the driver, especially off the tee. And so it's really, really hard to do. If you, if you go back to the, the, the PGA at Harding Park that Morikawa won, you know, I was talking to Como about DeChambeau heading out there and I'm like, he needs to be hitting driver literally on basically every single hole out here. And he dropped back to three wood way too often. He lost by a few shots. I told Como after that, I'm like, dude, I'm not kidding. Like making up holes, but if it's a driver on five, it's a driver on 14. Like the holes are the same. They just are kind of messing with his eyes a little bit. <clears throat> then fast forward to Wingfoot and exact same advice. Like, dude, it's driver on basically every single hole out here, unless it doesn't fit his eye because of shape. And the only two holes that really didn't fit his eye from shape are two and eight, because they're both dog leg rights. 
Well, now he took it too far to the other extreme and he still tried to hit driver on those holes and they just don't fit his shape. And so he blew it straight. They were literally the only bad tee shots he hit all week because he hit it right. And then he hit him through the fairway. So it's, it's a really hard thing to trust, even at that level, not trying to work it both ways, but to the, to the ultimate question is if you have a golf course that is designed somewhat, you know, well and appropriately, the corner's never going to be that bad of a spot. <clears throat> meaning the corner of a dog leg. So if yes, if driver's too much club, three wood is typically going to be able to be right around the corner. And typically that shouldn't leave you much more than 150-ish yards. That's really the way courses are designed kind of for the most part. Every once in a while, you'll get a screwy hole like my old number 15 here at Ventry Country Club in Dallas. Uh, it's it's a 390 or so yard par four and it's like 210 to the corner leaving 180. But you, unless you can draw it, you're not going to be able to draw it up and around these trees on the corner. And so it's just, just kind of a dumb hole. I don't know if I'm going to call it a dumb hole or not. It's just kind of a, it's technically just a hole where they ran out of room between some houses and and a river on the left. And so you really got to take the architecture into account. What will the corner leave me? And just again, typically dropping back to three wood on those holes, it's, it's not going to be the, it's not going to be the wrong decision by much if it is the wrong decision, but driver could be the wrong decision by a bunch. Again, if you're introducing more double crosses. And I really think that that's the key point that people have to understand is with any golf shot, you know, DJ with a sand wedge or Zalatoris with a driver, double crossing the ball is almost always off the planet. So, you know, for me, I fade hundred percent of my shots. So if I'm going to stand on a tee shot and try to draw it, my miss for sure is a block cut. So now I've started it right, I've hit it right, and it's moving right. That is what makes shot patterns massive, period. <clears throat> and, and just one last thought on this. I was doing a seminar at Old Waverly uh, one year, you know, back when Tiger was kind of struggling. And on the first hole, we're, we're having breakfast. And on the first hole, he hit it like a thousand yards right. And on the second hole, he hit it like a thousand yards left. He definitely dub- was trying. The only way you get it that far offline is if you were trying to draw it and you hit a block cut or you were trying to fade it and you hit a pull hook. Like that's the only way the shots get as far offline as his did. He's not going to play a fade and accidentally block it a hundred yards right. Like that's not going to happen. And so I told the people I was having breakfast with, I was like, he's going to shoot a million today because he has no idea where the club face is. This is not going to be pretty. We go in, we do the seminar one of the assistant pros that was with us comes walking back in later that day. He's like, well, did you see what tiger shot? And he's laughing. I'm like, no, did he shoot 67? He's like, no, he shot 84. And if you remember that one round that he shot a billion at, at Memorial, I'm not going to say calling it after, you know, two tee shots was super easy, but that's the power of the double cross. He just had no idea where that golf club was. And that was not the chip yips time. That was just the, I have no idea where it's going time. Well, talking about shot dispersions, I know you mentioned earlier that 200 yards uh, is about a 40, 45 yard wide dispersion. And for a tour pro, yes, yeah, so these are the best guys in the world. So that's twenty more than 20 yards either wide, uh, either side wide. What about with the driver then? Because I get a lot of amateurs saying, oh, yes, but uh, but tour pros never miss it big. That's the difference between amateurs and tour pros. And I say, have you ever gone and seen a tournament? I mean, these guys can miss it farther offline than you could if you even tried because they're hitting it offline at 330 yards sometimes. So what – and I've seen some of these um, patterns that Lou posts – 
But give me your your interpretation. What what are driver widths, dispersions? What do you normally build your strategies around? So with approach shot strategy, and I really do mean this, if you can break about 85, the, the decade baseline numbers are going to work pretty well for you. For sure, ones you're shooting in the 70s and better, the decade baseline numbers are going to work perfect for you on approach shot strategies. Um, with the tee shots, everyone's different because, and, and I use this example all the time, but while, while Cameron Champ was at Texas A&M, you know, that's where I went. So I did a decent amount of work with the team there. And Cameron, you know, hits it 340 yards and they've got Walker Lee on the team also who he's not a very big guy. He doesn't hit it quite as far. Obviously, he's a great player, but he doesn't hit as far. So I need each player with their driver to be able to hit, you know, 20, 30 balls a few days in a row, either on a launch monitor or you just have to get on Google Earth and you don't have to get on Google Earth. You just got to get in Chrome and search uh, the, the, the maps of your golf course, of your driving range, rather, and just lay out from from this post to this post is 60 yards or whatever it is. I mean, again, literally a guy in Amsterdam yesterday, I was having a webinar with him and it's just so cool to be able to show him how to set up his range. He had, his range was about 85 yards wide, but then there was one post on the left that was exactly 60 yards from the right net. And I'm like, you need to sit up on at this stall and hit your driver. And there was a half an outhouse on the other end. I'm like, that's the center of your shot pattern. And you just, all you're trying to do is keep it between that post and that net, which again is 60 yards. And, and I hate saying this because it's not true, but it is true. It's, it's actually not that hard to do. As long as the ball's moving one direction and one direction only, it's just not that hard to flare it even into that big of a spot. So, you know, the, the real key to your question though, is it, it really is different for everyone. You know, Jason day, I've got his track man data that, that I show in the, in the decade app and I use my seminar where he hit, I think it was 20 drivers over here at John Sherman's range in Dallas back when he was number one in the world and third in strokes gain driving back in 2015. And his shot pattern on 20 tee shots in practice was 74 yards wide. And that number just makes, it just blows people's mind. But here's the dude that's number one in the world hitting the same shot over and over again. But then when I go to a hole, you know, at a PGA tour event, uh, number eight at, at uh, PGA West is a par five, dead straight. There's nothing left or right. And that shot pattern is pretty much always going to be about 70 yards wide. We don't know where everyone's aiming, but we can kind of assume they're all aiming at roughly at the middle of the fairway on that particular shot. And it'll be, like I say, about 65, 70 yards wide. Then if you go to number 18 on that same course on that same day, the shot pattern will be over a hundred yards wide every single time because there's a lake on the left and half their inner conversation is don't go left. Well, I can tell you where that one's going and it is straight, right? That's the no laying up for right uh, image because it is just going right. And, and what I try to tell people is anytime you hear any iteration of the word don't in your head, that's a key to start over. Don't doesn't work anywhere. Um, you know, don't go right. Don't go left. I don't know what the wind is. You just got to start over on that, but it. You hear it, guys. Don't say don't. <laughs> don't say don't, man. <laughs> I think when I first saw it was my college coach who showed me. I think it's been a popular YouTube video for you, the uh, the driver decision tree video. The first time I saw it, and how he he was at Columbia. He's the golf coach at Columbia now, and obviously works with Mark Brody. But he's like, you got to watch this video of this guy Scott Fawcett. And I saw, you know, how he was taking the dispersion data from his players, um, overlaying it on the map. And I was like, wow, that makes so much sense. I never really thought of it that way. And then what's interesting is um, 
I think it gives people a lot more freedom on the golf course. And and again, not everyone has access to a launch monitor, but if you can work with like a teaching pro and, and do a few sessions and see what your dispersion patterns are, or you can get clever on the driving range with Google Maps, like you said. Once you start to understand that, you know, for a tour player, 65 to 70 yards from left to right is quite standard and they can play functional golf with those kind of misses. And then you start to benchmark your own dispersion and then plan it on the course. Again, I don't want to give away decade. You can sign up for, for, you know, I mean, again, like the tee shot stuff, I, I literally have it just all out there for free. I mean, if you, if you search N G C A A driving video, it's literally all the tee shots. Yeah. I think everyone. Yeah. If I, if I give everyone homework from this episode, I'd say to watch it because it's very enlightening, but speaking anecdotally about, you know, my own transformation to someone who looked at, you know, I'd step up to the T and you talk about don't, um, I'd be looking at the trees. I'd be looking at the bunkers. I'm like, don't hit it there. Don't hit it there. Versus again, putting in the right kind of practice, but more importantly, a mindset change of saying, well, I'm just going to pick a smart target and understand that yes, in certain circumstances, I am going to have that bigger miss and put myself in a recovery situation. That doesn't mean it was the wrong strategy. It's just the variability of golf. And I think Scott's been excellent at communicating that fact. And I think it can give a lot of golfers freedom and the opportunity to step up to the tee and say, well, I've got this big window to look at and I can land it in that window and be okay left or right of this target. It's given me a lot of freedom to do this type of prep work before my rounds, pick my targets, step up to the tee, committed to that target, and just hit the shot and deal with the results and, and having the expectation management to understand what are reasonable results. Um, so that, to me, is the, one of the more powerful things about just the idea of dispersion in general with tee shots. Well, and what I also think that you can really accomplish with that is, Again, you're like, even me, I can sit in here in my indoor simulator and hit a bunch of drivers within 50 ish yards of width. Now, if I get out on the course and I blow one 70 yards, you know, right. It's kind of a key. Like before I'd be like, well, that's just a bad swing. But if I hit one that's, you know, 35 yards, right. Or 35 yards left of my center point, it's a 70 yard wide shot pattern. If I get it within that, I really don't think twice about the tee shot, even if it's in the water or in the trees, it's like, yeah, it just didn't work out. <clears throat> it's the ones when you start getting it bigger than that, that you can think, okay, that's, uh, that was an anomaly. That was unusual. Was it just a bad swing? Did I have a bad thought process going on? What could I have done different or better? And, you know, the, the main thing is, you know, I, I agree with my main detractors when they all say like, oh, it's common sense. Like it is once you've seen it, but it sure as hell isn't common sense until you've seen it. <clears throat> it, it, it may seem like it, but there's just nobody that does this intuitively just from birth. I mean, literally nobody. You have to figure it out at some point if you ever figure it out at all. And like I say, I played, you know, one 10 times on, on in professional golf tournaments. I was pretty damn good at golf and I never even came close to figuring it out. And, and you know, maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't think I am. But from my experience, again, watching guys like Stuart Sink and Webb Simpson, a lot of these veterans, shoot, a guy like Boo Weekly, a lot of these veterans watching these older guys that been out there doing this forever say, wow, it really crystallized a few things or wow, I didn't really know about that or think about that until they go hit some balls on, on, you know, on their launch monitor and see the same thing. So it's, it's just not common sense. It's, it, there's nothing simple about this game. I'd say you're, you almost see in the shot data pattern left to right, you see the tour players 
kind of intuitively figure out certain things, right? You know, if the pin is on the left and there's water left, their shot dispersion pattern is going to be more right biased. So there's definitely things in there, whether it's uh, a conscious decision of them to aim away from the pin or whether it's unconscious things, uh, unconscious processes going in to avoid that left miss. If you were to do that with... I was just like number 18 at, at, at TPC, at PGA West that I was talking about. There's a lake on the left. These guys aren't morons. I mean, there's, yeah, they hit, you know, five or 6%, whatever the number is of, of tee shots in the water there, but they hit a lot more 75 yards right than they do in the water. And I would, it's not optimal to, to well, you, you only blew it right because you were thinking don't go left, but it's better than going left. And so exactly what you're saying there is, is spot on correct. The guys on tour, but it is a bit of a survivorship bias. These, again, these guys aren't morons and they are the best players in the world. I don't expect this to be like, oh my God, I never thought of that. I expect it for them to be like, wow, that really crystallized some thoughts. But you take some of these young college golfers, they just literally have no clue what they're doing. Well, that's what I was going to say. When you look at amateurs and you see the same on the same hole, you might see a more over-the-flag biased aim and dispersion around that. So obviously these these tour players, the survivorship bias that you talk about, they that can be learned. And obviously your system helps people learn that so they don't have to go through all the experience. Or some people can have all the experience and never learn how to improve their strategy. It's just not within them for, for whatever reason. Uh, but there are certain things even the tour players don't get right and they almost never learn, right? Which is, you know, I, I know you talk about the flag on the front and you see where we're tour players even they have a shot pattern that is not optimal and even they could use more um, conscious strategies there to improve their their strokes gained mathematically not optimal it's not even close to optimal i mean what you're talking about there with the front hole locations i, I do think this is incredible from like 140 to 180 yards in the fairway pga tour players hit 57 percent of the greens to front pins to back pins, they hit 71%. Like that's insane. And that's because everybody's playing, even tour players are playing for like that 80th percentile shot. So they're playing for the, the not quite perfect shot, but pretty darn close to perfect. And there's just literally, you cannot offset missing an extra 14% of, of greens and regulation with birdies. It, it can't be done. And so I, it would be an interesting study to do. I know it would work for front pins, or excuse me, for middle pins, if you took, uh, you know, number 13 at Riviera and took all of the shots to the middle hole location and then used a little computer programming to to hold them out to the front hole location to predict what their score would have been, I would almost guarantee you that I bet you 50 to 75% of holes on the PGA Tour, the scoring average would be better from the shots to the middle of the green than they are to the front pin. It's just it's it's just mind boggling how awful they are at that. And I there's such a part of me that's like, shut up, dude, because I really do want to go try to play the Champions Tour. And I got all these guys like Darren Clark and all these dudes that I've worked with where I'm like, mm, I got, I'm, I'm helping too many of my competitors here because there are certain things. I don't need you to be better at golf. I need you to choose the right club. I need you to choose the right shape. And honestly, I believe that even at that level, it can be worth up to a full shot around. I mean, depending on how bad you are at it. And, and that just can't be overstated how absurd it is to make a statement like that, that it, it's a full shot, even at the highest level in the world. But I mean, you just, you're seeing it right now on tour that the young players that I've worked with in college that then go out and get straight through the corn Ferry tour and then get straight out onto the PGA tour. 
they're out there dominating it, you know, not dominating it, but they're pretty much kicking ass just a couple weeks into the season. And it's been that way for a year and a half now, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, it's, it's literally only going to get worse. These kids are so strong and young. You get a guy like Cameron young coming out there, just absolutely mauling it. I mean, <laughs> flying the green on 13 at three to or excuse me on 15 at 320 this weekend in Jackson is just insane. And the thought that a lot of people used to lay up on that are like, well, I just hit a little seven iron sandwich or you can ship it over the green and ship it coming back. It's incredible. Let's talk about, I think one of the things I, I, I first learned from reading Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts. And one of the chapters that really blew my mind was just avoiding big trouble off the tee. Penalty strokes, recovery situations, you could throw fairway bunkers in there. But, you know, one of the images I always think of is that, you know, he figured out mathematically that if there was out of bounds, let's say on the right side of the hole and there was just rough on the left side, you know, most golfers would assume, oh, I'm just going to aim up the middle of the fairway. And he said, well, that's, you know, mathematically incorrect because you're going to bring in that out of bounds result more often. And he suggested that aiming to the left side almost into the rough would get you the lowest average score over the long run, which really was strategy is all about. It's not a shot to shot thing. This is choosing optimal targets over the long run to lower your scores in the long run. Let's talk a little bit about how avoiding the big, the quote unquote, the, the capital B-I-G trouble off the tee factors into choosing targets. Um, I know that's a fairly complex topic, but where do you start with that? Not really. I mean, Everything that I did really is just a bunch of very basic weighted average math. It's funny because I'm pretty good at math, but I would actually say my strongest suit is logic. And so using the correct logic to see all of the, the, the data and be like, what's the problem we can solve with this? But again, it's just basic weighted average math. So let's pretend you have a hole like, like you and Mark Brody are talking about there and you hit it out of bounds 10% of the time. It's not that much, really. 10% of the time, one in 10 well, it's a two-stroke penalty, 10.1 times two. It's two-tenths of a stroke. That's what it costs you by hitting you know, 10%, a mere 10% of balls out of bounds. 100 yards in the fairway is 2.8 strokes. 160 yards in the fairway is 2.98 strokes. It's literally a bigger penalty to hit 10% of your tee shots out of bounds than to be 60 yards further back. Now, I don't want you to be, I want you to take the best of both worlds. I don't want you to be 60 yards back. I want you to hammer driver, but like you said, you want to be aiming away from the out of bounds. And, and a hole that always comes to mind with this is the old Houston golf club where they played shell. There's a lake on the left, there's a bunker on the right, and then there's nothing for a thousand yards right of that. And, and the tour, you know, the, the few years leading into my creating decade, the, you know, the scoring average on that hole is like 4.42, I think, the year before, because they were hitting 12 or 15% of their tee shots into the water. And this particular water hazard is just a re-tee. And so what I used to tell people in my seminar, I was like, these guys, they're aiming right of the, you know, you can just look at the image, the shot link image, and it's centered right of the center of the fairway. So they're, they are respecting the water hazard but not enough by about seven or eight yards, which if your shot pattern is 70 yards wide and you're not respecting it by seven or eight yards, it's not exactly 10%, but it's pretty damn close actually to that many more balls in the water. 
And I used to say in my seminar, I would like point out over here to the right of the bunker. I'm like, if I were watching the Houston Open, I would not stand right here anytime in the future because I guarantee you the entire PGA Tour is going to start sending this thing straight right once they understand what I teach. And that particular shot, again, if you go to that NGCAA driving video on YouTube, I talk about this, this whole exactly in it. And the last year that they played the Houston Open there, because obviously they switched it to whatever the name of the new Golf Memorial Park or whatever it is, the last year of the Houston Open, there's there's the fairway, the bunker, a whole bunch of rough, and then a cart path. They hit more balls right of the cart path the last year than, that they played it there than every prior year combined. And the scoring average dropped from 4.4 to like 4.15. Simply, That's just simply avoiding penalty shots. Jordan Spieth hit it in, in that year he finished – third because he missed the playoff by one between Bo Hostler and uh and and Poulter. Um Spieth that year hit two shots right of the cart path, one in the bunker and one uh in the fairway. But the fairway was right center of the fairway. Here's literally a dude aiming 40 yards right of the water probably because the the optimal target technically is hitting it right at the bunker. Like that is the where you should be hitting it. And it's is that good design, bad design? I, I don't really know or care, but the bunker is your target. If you hit a good tee shot, it should go in that bunker, which is absolutely insane to think about, but it's just the math. I had this, yeah, I had this scenario recently when I played. There was out of bounds on the left, is wide open on the right, but obviously just rough there. I aimed at the right side in the rough and hit my shot and I hit just this perfect laser beam towards it and after it, I went oh right where I aimed and uh, the playing partner said well that was idiotic then and I I didn't want to say well and actually no that's good strategy because then it would just be too long a conversation but you know that guy he was the one who aimed right down the center and ended up pull hooking it out of bounds straight after me <laughs> so well it, the, the reason I use that hole on 18 is Bo Hostler is a guy that I've worked with since he was on the Corn Ferry Tour. And Bo lost again that year in a playoff. And he stepped up there on the tee shot with driver and, you know, whoever it was, Maltby or whoever it was that was walking with him was like, boy, he's got driver here. And I don't know why. And Johnny's like, yeah, three wood's got to be enough. <clears throat> well, three wood gets to the fairway bunker also. So what does it actually accomplish? Nothing except for making 100% of your second shots longer. So on the 72nd hole, Bo's got a one-shot lead. He's he's aiming at the bunker for sure, and he pulls it 15 yards, and he pipes it right down the middle, and Johnny's like, well, if you know you're going to do that, why not? Well, then they get into a playoff, and he pumps it right into the bunker, and they're like, see, that's why you don't hit driver. I'm like, that was a better shot than the one on the 72nd hole. That's where he was aiming it. It's just unfortunate here. But there's not enough room with three. But again, the fairway's only 30 yards wide. It's not like you just, well, I'm just – Hey, Ian, I'm going to hit three wood here. So can I just go place it in the fairway? Like that's not how it works. So you still have to hit three wood in the fairway. And again, you are just making a hundred percent of your second shots longer in order to hit the fairway, you know, realistically four to seven ish percent more of the time that again, getting back to just weighted average math, that is just a bad trade. It's all about cost benefit on both sides, isn't it? So, you you know, if you're hitting out of bounds 10% of the time, that's going to cost you 0.2 of a shot. If you're hitting water 10% of the time, that's costing you 0.1 of a shot. Uh, whereas, you know, what are you gaining from the extra distance by hitting driver versus losing versus, um, you know, you, you're losing on the other side of the spectrum as well. If you hit three wood, how how 
how much does it gain you to hit those fairways? And it's not as much as you think versus how much does it lose you to hit it 30, 40 yards farther back? And so are there any really generalized rules that you could give people in, in the podcast or, you know, almost summarizing your, um, your video that you were talking about earlier? Hit driver everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll bring up a... The joke on Twitter that said, this podcast is going to be really short. Shape it one way, hit driver everywhere. What's next? But Well, I, I had, you know, getting back to like that, you know, you were saying, oh, is it, is it bad architect or... Architecture, just dealing with some type of designs on holes, and I don't want to lead this by saying bad architecture because it, I, I love the course dearly. I got I got to play um, the last two days. I played in a tournament at Friarshead, which is designed by Corin Crenshaw, which they build very cool golf courses that people enjoy, myself included. And one of the the guys uh, who follows us on Twitter competed with me, and there's two holes there, and they they love to employ centerline bunkers. Um, that's one of the main features of the course. And on the 11th hole and the 13th hole, I'll, I'll pick the 13th hole, for example. There's two There's two bunkers just straight in the middle of the fairway. And you do not have much room on the left or right. Um, so my answer to that question was, well, if I chase up the left side, I could lose my ball in the fescue to the left. If I chase up the right side and I'm trying to avoid the bunkers that direction, I can lose my ball in the fescue to the right. So I just went straight at him and blasted the damn thing. The first day I went over the bunkers, the second day I hit a horrible shot and laid short of them. So I avoided them. But, you know, you get questions like that where you say like you have certain holes that I don't want to say peculiar is the word. It just is the design where you're faced with these decisions. And like Adam said, like sometimes I'm going to hit that laser straight shot and go straight into that bunker and just have to accept that result. But if I chose to avoid it on the left or right side, well, then I'm now accepting that the dispersion shifts in that direction and I'm bringing other trouble, which I believe is bigger trouble because I could lose the ball. That's essentially an OB shot. Um, So my answer to that question was just just go straight at the damn thing. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's correct. I mean, again, like this is where I don't try to get into the architecture debates, even though I obviously have an opinion on them. I don't know which holes these are at Friarshead, but I see a couple of them on my other monitor with bunkers in the middle and they're really small. They're actually tiny bunkers, but they play. And and I actually, I appreciate them because they, you know, when you think about normal golfers, like they get into your head and they should like that. it, It gives you the impression that these are, you know, bigger problems than they actually are. They are like when you walk up to them, they're they're quite small. But you could land in them, and then you just have to pitch out and you know accept your accept your your medicine. But I I felt the greater good of accepting the full dispersion of my driver is that a lot of times I'll miss left and a lot of times I'll miss right, but I'll probably still be in the fairway. The the key to them is there's never, and I do mean this. I'm assuming the golf course doesn't suck. There's never enough room on one side of a centerline bunker or tree to try to favor a side because eventually there's going to be something else over there, whether it's the native areas like you're talking about, more bunkers, like shot patterns with drivers are simply really wide, period. And so if you think of this just, if you think of a normal distribution curve that's really low, so yeah, it's centered over the center, but it's not... You don't have that much more of a chance of hitting the center as you do 25 yards left or 25 yards right. It's it's a very low, flat shotgun blast that you're hitting at it. And so if you can imagine this bunker in the middle, the, let's pretend, I think it's number nine at Bandon Dunes where they played the U.S. Amateur uh, on whichever one of the main courses it is. 
there's a bunker right in the middle of the fairway and there's like 30 yards left and right of it. People are like, where's the target? I'm like, right at the bunker. If you try to favor a side, you're not removing the bunker. You're just putting a different part of your shot pattern on the bunker and you're bringing the trouble right on, I believe it was right on that hole, more into play. So there's nothing you can do to get around it. And, and it just kind of is what it is. So I do think personally, well, it's not lazy design because you got to design something, but I do think it's unfair design. I, I don't think if there's not a way you can, with skill or strategy, remove something, then I think it's kind of dumb personally. There's a there's a par five, I think it's number 15 at Blessings um, in Arkansas. Uh, I, know, I know this one. <laughs> yeah, where the NCAA championships were a couple. The tree. Yeah. And the whole golf course, no, I'll say this one because I don't ever hope to play the blessings. The golf course is a joke. I hate this place. It's so dumb. It's ridiculous. And I'm saying that because there's one guy on Twitter who hates me particularly uh, aggressively who's a member there, but it's just ridiculous. And as I was laying out the course for my teams that were playing there, I was just like, this is dumb. This is dumb. This is dumb. And then my notes on 15 world, well, it only took him 15 holes to work in a, a tree into the middle of the fairway. And guess what? It's dumb. And it literally decided the women's championship. It is the target. There is no way to favor one side or the other of this tree. There's no way to hit it past it. It's just in play and it's, it is your target. So the better the shot, the more in play it is for your second shot, which I just think is ridiculous. A, a Wake Forest female player hit a, a great tee shot and was just behind it, but just left of it. She was a drawer of the golf ball, but since she was barely on the left side of it with it in place, she was going to try to play a fade. And I will say she probably didn't choose the right shot. She probably should have just bunted an iron further down the fairway, but she tried to cut a three wood down and around it and double crossed it into the hazard left. And it's like, there you go. I, I told you before this tournament even started that this stupid hole was going to be a problem. And it literally decided the championship. And I, I do think that's, I can't decide if lazy or dumb is the right word, but it's well, I mean, it, it, it's it's almost irrelevant because either way, you know, if you are playing these courses, whether you appreciate that design or don't, you're still faced with the decision off the tee is like, where am I going to pick this target? So it, it almost like your opinion on it obviously becomes irrelevant. You're trying to make a, 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 a math decision, which of course you're you're trying to help people to do that. And it kind of leads into the, I do want to talk about the angle chasing. And like, I know not everyone who listens to this podcast gets, you know, uh, is on Twitter. It's a, it's a small part of the golf world, but there's all these arguments about it. I've had a positive experience on Twitter because me and Adam, me and Adam are scaredy cats. We don't really get uh, controversial on there. That question I asked you about the centerline bunker leads into another concept of, you know, some people, you know, when you ask a friend, when you're playing a course for the first time, they'll be like, oh, you're going to want to favor the left side of this fairway so you have a good angle to that green. And that never made sense to me personally because <laughs> I just knew I was a horrible driver of the ball. And I'm like, I, I can't hit it there even if I tried. And even as a better driver of the ball, I still can't. I think the common theme of what you're trying to say with shot shaping, not choosing one side of the fairway over the other is that you stand to lose overall when you factor in the totality of your shots. When you choose those targets, then you actually stand to gain. Meaning, let's say on that hole, I chose to go up the left side of the fairway to avoid that bunker. I also have to accept how many times I'm going to hit it into the fescue and lose the ball by making that decision. So yes, sometimes I will avoid the bunker and have that nice angle into that green, but 
I also have to think about, well, how many times do I lose the ball or, or draw a horrible lie in the fescue as a result? So I think, you know, one of the reoccurring themes of, of smart tee shot strategy is thinking about long term. And when you choose a target, it's not that optimal t- angle that it brings you into the green is like, does that bring more trouble into play as well? So can you succinctly, I know that that's been a hot topic for you, but it's an important one because people do, they, they step up the tee shots and they say, oh, I want to be on the right side of the fairway here. And they forget about, you know, the bunkers over there or the trees on the right side, whereas the left side could be totally innocuous. Well, again, shot patterns are simply wide. And, you know, Mark Brody was on No Laying Ups podcast a couple months ago, and it is it is comical listening to, you know, it was one of my detractors who are trying to get him to say angles matter and whatever. And, you know, he initially is like, no, I mean, you 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 can't. Yes, an angle might be important, but you can't chase it profitably. Meaning if I take this 70 yard wide shot pattern and I try to force it further to the right in order to gain an angle to a left pin, eventually you're going to run into some trouble on the right. But again, the fairway is not just a hundred yards wide with nothing on either side. You're going to run into some sort of a hazard or something eventually. And that's never in, in the expectation math, that's never going to work out better. I mean, it literally just, it's never going to work out better. And they pressed Mark on it hard enough to where eventually he's like, you know, the guy's like, well, let's just pretend there's nothing to the right. And then Mark's like, oh, well, yeah, in that case, sure you can. And it's like, well, that, but yes, as a thought experiment, but that doesn't exist. Go show me one hole. Again, some of the holes were comical, in my opinion, at Bandon Dunes, how wide they are. And even still, they're 70 or 80 yards. Like you still can't even chase an angle on that because by definition, if my shot pattern is 70 yards wide, and if I start trying to force that thing further to the right to gain an angle, I'm going to be putting the right side of my shot pattern into some sort of trouble, whether that's rough, trees, bunkers, whatever it is. Even if the fairway, literally fairway is 70 yards wide, you're going to run into trouble eventually. Again, assuming the golf course isn't a, a wide open runway. And so chasing an angle in any form or fashion on any single hole is absolutely absurd and there's no way you can do it and, and it and it result in the lowest expected score. And ultimately all that I am focused on and trying to help people do is find the lowest expected score way to navigate a golf course. Again, it's what's funny is one of the common critiques that I get is like, doesn't this make it no fun? I'm like, aren't you thinking about strategy out there at some point? Like, aren't you trying to, to think of what's the best way to play this hole? All I'm doing is giving you a template for how to do that. And it's extremely simple. So if quantifying strategy that you hopefully are thinking about anyways makes it unfun, then sorry. But what's great then is even Lou Stagner's awesome work that he does on Twitter. Lou's has shown on the PGA Tour that when in position, the scoring average is actually higher. So to left pins from the right side of the fairway and vice versa, left to right pins, the scoring average actually goes higher. And there's really only one logical explanation for that. And it's because someone's like, well, I've got the angle here. Let's get more aggressive. And so they get more aggressive, which never pans out. You you really do just have to kind of sit back and just wait out again, a little bit of positive variance within your shot pattern, you know, just having the right shot happen, happen. So another one that people talk about all the time is number one at Royal Melbourne, where, you know, if the pin's on the left, it's a, you know, short 340 or 60 yard hole, whatever it is. And they're like, you have to favor the right. Again, the fairway's 35 yards wide. You, you can't favor the right. But even if I'm aiming at the middle, 
I still have a right side of my shot pattern. So if you think of an, an ellipse out there being your shot pattern, I'm aiming at the middle of the fairway. I'll accidentally hit it on the right-hand side and gain that angle. And sure, a lot of times I'll be on the left side of my shot pattern. Oops, it just didn't work out. And that's really what people have to see in, in order to understand that idea. So the conversation with Scott went a lot longer than we expected. We've got about two and a half hours of recording. So we're going to end it there for episode one, and then you can check out episode two next week. You can find me, John Sherman, at practical-golf.com. Check out Adam's site at adamyounggolf.com. And of course, thanks to our show sponsor, Shop Indoor Golf. You can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. If you're in the market for a golf simulator, a launch monitor, any of the add-ons like hitting mats, practice nets, impact screens, they can help you out. The technology might be a little confusing, but you can give them a call and they will give you some guidance. So check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. Thanks to their support of the podcast and for all of you listening. And we will see you next week with part two.